Welcome to the Harrisburg Brethren in Christ sermon series. Bonjour, bienvenue la série de sermons de Harrisburg Brethren in Christ, where our vision is to be a thriving, diverse, urban church sharing Christ's love and serving the needs of our local and global communities. Here's an example of what you'll hear. If God was powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he's powerful enough to break these chains of addiction on me. He's powerful enough to break the generational curses in my family. He is powerful enough to stop the senseless violence in Harrisburg. I'm telling you this morning the incredible truth that Jesus Christ is crazy about you. Helping each other to experience God's love, God's power, God's healing. Helping to change one another's lives. Church can continue to be a place, or church can continue to become a people, my people. Let's pray. And now here's this week's sermon. Please check it out. God bless you and take care. Amen. Uh, Pastor Woody was, uh, he's speaking this morning at Hebron, uh, Camp Hebron for a Mennonite church that's having a retreat there. Um, he was disappointed to not be able to be here on uh, Lydia's first Sunday as our worship pastor. And um, uh, I was thinking this week about my first Sunday when I joined the staff of the church and was introduced to the church. I was used to, um, let me just say it, quiet congregations. And so they uh, announced that I was uh, there it was in the old building on chestnut street and i was shocked at the welcome that i received from the congregation the whooping and clapping was it's not what i was used to but to this day it warms my heart to think about that moment so let's warmly welcome our pastor lydia this morning So I hope for you that it is an indelible memory in your heart and mind as well. This is a wonderful congregation, and I say that with all sincerity. Okay, so let's get to the message. Uh, on Friday afternoon, this past Friday, I was sitting in the office taking care of some finance details, and as I was sitting there, the fire alarm panel in the office began to beep. Now don't worry, the fire alarm itself wasn't going off. That's a deafening experience that you can't, um, you just can hardly bear it as the fire strobes blink and the, uh, the screech, they screech their warning to get out of the building. This was more of an irritating, rhythmic beeping from the panel box, beep, beep, beep. If you go upstairs, you'll hear it. And each time the beeping began, every minute or so, the panel's digital display said, trouble. When I was finally away from the office, away from the irritating sound and able to reflect a bit, it struck me that we don't need a digital panel beeping at us and telling us that there's trouble in our lives, do we? We know it full well. The signs are all around us. Lack of peace, anxiety, debt, fighting, crime, alienation, people pulling up beside you and saying horrible things. We don't need a digital sign to tell us there's trouble at home, trouble at work, trouble at school, trouble in relationships, trouble with illness or pain, trouble with addiction, trouble making decisions, trouble with our finances or the lack thereof trouble with our past, trouble with the unknown of our future, trouble with sin, trouble in the world. It sounds depressing, but Psalm 46, our passage for today's message, is a psalm, a song, written about a time when God's people were in trouble. Let's turn there to Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, 
the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We thank you this morning, God, for this portion of your word and for the way that it um, speaks to our inner self. We pray this morning, God, that you would speak to us and the things that we need to hear whatever they may be. May your spirit uh, be at work among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Psalm 46 was written in a time of trouble for God's people. The common thinking is that Psalms 42 to 45 form a trilogy, and if you're mathematically inclined, you likely realized immediately that Psalms 42 to 45 would be four psalms, not three. How is that a trilogy? Psalm 42 and 43 are considered by some to be one psalm. So this first trilogy of psalms regarding suffering and exile were composed during the time that God's people were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And Psalm 46 then is part of a second trilogy of psalms, 46, 47, and 48, exalting and praising the Lord for his deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrians. Assyria was to the north of the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. Here's a map. Andrew, you could put the first one up. Nope, nope, that's not the first one. Thank you. Um, A map of this part of the world in 1450 BC. You'll see that green section is the empire of Assyria. It was um, similar to the other empires surrounding it. But by the 8th century BC, it was a very different world. Now you can show the second map. Here, I have a pointer. Let's see if it works. See this dark green part here? Sorry to those of you who can't see this side. I don't know how to do this. There we go. That dark green part there. Um, That was the Assyrian Empire at the time that this psalm was written in the darker green. The Assyrians dominated the region. Even the shape of the empire on the map looks like someone about to pounce on its prey, doesn't it? So um, here's Judah, and Israel was this part that uh, by the time of this psalm, Israel, the tribes of Israel would have been included in that darker green. Helps you to see what was going on at this time. God's people were a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom, Israel, had 10 of the 12 Israelite tribes, and the southern kingdom, Judah, had the other two Israelite tribes. Less land, fewer resources, but greater spiritual resources with Jerusalem as its capital city. So around 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire, the most powerful empire at the time, took Israel, the northern kingdom into captivity. And then in 701 BC, Sennacherib, then the king of of Assyria, excuse me, swept into Judah, the southern kingdom, where Hezekiah was king and laid siege to Jerusalem. In his annals, Sennacherib describes this campaign in these words. He says, as for Hezekiah the Judean, who had not submitted to my yoke, 46 of his strong walled cities and the cities of their environs, which were numberless, I besieged, I captured, I plundered as booty I counted them. Him like a caged bird in Jerusalem, his royal city I shut up. According to Sennacherib's annals, he deported 200,150 people, young and old, male and female, and took them as plunder. With this huge empire, 
against this tiny little portion of the world. What chance did God's people have? They had no chance. They had no chance except that God, the Lord Almighty, is an ever-present help in trouble. The Lord's intervention in the Assyrian exile can be found in 2 Kings. We won't take time to read through the whole chapter, but I'd encourage you to take some time to read it later today. Hezekiah's prayer to the Lord is in verses 15 to 19 of that chapter. And God's declaration regarding the king of Assyria is in verses 32 and 34. And then God's intervention in verse 35 and verse 36 says this. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh, which was the capital city of, of the Assyrian Empire, and stayed there. So the setting of Psalm 46 was a time of distress for God's people, a time in which great trust was required, followed by rejoicing and praise at God's intervention on their behalf. At a much later time in history, at another time of distress for God's people, and a time when great trust was required, at the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, Psalm 46 became known as Luther's Psalm. About Psalm 46, Martin Luther said, we sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh and sin. Luther himself composed 37 hymns, of which only 10 have survived in our English hymnals, and only one has become a universal treasure. A mighty fortress is our God. I want to take a small aside and just say a little something about, about Luther and singing at that time. Luther wasn't the inventor of congregational singing. But in the Roman church, the clergy had monopolized the singing function in the church for at least several hundred years before Luther. And he helped to bring singing back to the people. Perhaps even more significantly, since 574 AD, so almost a thousand years, women, women had been forbidden to sing in the church. It's almost incomprehensible that women had been forbidden to sing in the church for almost a thousand years. Praise the Lord that part of the reformation of the church was that such a restriction was no more, is no more. So that's an aside. A Mighty Fortress is Our God was written around 1527 by Luther and is based on Psalm 46. See if you hear themes from the psalm in its words. I won't sing it, I promise. A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth, abideth, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Do you hear Psalm 46 in those words? 
There's an alternate translation to the hymn that begins the third stanza with the words that, are, that certainly are reminiscent of Judah's vulnerability compared to Assyria's power. Though devils all the world should fill, all eager to devour us, we tremble not, we fear no ill, they shall not overpower us. Let's look together a little more closely at Psalm 46. The first section is in verses 1 to 3. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. God, Elohim, the supreme God, is our shelter, our hope, our place of trust. He is our strength, and this word is used in scripture as strength and force, in security and in majesty. He is a vehemently, exceedingly, holy, speedily present help in trouble. And trouble literally is translated as tightness, adversity, affliction, anguish, distress. Can you feel the tightness of the squeeze of trouble? Therefore, because this is who and what God is, we will not fear or dread, even though all sorts of distressing things may take place. The earth may move, the mountains may fall, the waters of the sea may growl, and earthquakes may occur. Seeing the devastation that has occurred in our world in recent weeks through hurricanes and flooding and earthquakes and landslides makes these words all the more gripping for us, don't they? God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Corey Ten Boom, whose family helped to hide Jewish people in Holland and was eventually arrested for doing so, wrote about God's help as she and her sister were sent to Ravensbrück, perhaps the cruelest among the Nazi prisons. She said, rank upon rank, we stood that hot September morning in 1944, more than a thousand women lining the railroad siding, one unspoken thought among us, not Germany. Beside me, my sister Betsy swayed. I was 52, Betsy 59. These seven months in a prison and concentration camp since we had been caught and concealing Jews in our home had been harder on her. Behind us, guards were shouting, prodding us with their guns. Instinctively, my hand went to the string around my neck. From it, hanging down my back between my shoulder blades, was the small cloth bag that held our Bible. That forbidden book, which had not only sustained Betsy and me throughout these months, but given us strength to share with our fellow prisoners. So far, we had kept it hidden. But if we should go to Germany, we had heard tales of the prison inspections there. Then she describes the train ride that took several days with um, the crush of bodies and the filth and the thirst that they experienced. And then she continues, at last, on the morning of the third day, the door was hauled open with its full width. Only a handful of very young soldiers was there to order us out and march us off. No more were needed. We could scarcely walk, let alone resist. From the crest of a small hill we saw it, the end of our journey, a vast gray barrack city surrounded by double concrete walls, Ravensbrück. Like a whispered curse, the word passed back through the line. This was the notorious women's death camp itself, the very symbol to Dutch hearts of all that was evil. As we stumbled down the hill, I felt the little Bible bumping on my back. As long as we had that, I thought, we could face even hell itself, but how could we conceal it through the inspection I knew lay ahead? It was the middle of the night when Betsy and I reached the processing barracks. And there, under the harsh ceiling lights, we saw a dismaying sight. As each woman reached the head of the line, she had to strip off every scrap of clothes, throw them all onto a pile guarded by soldiers, and walk naked past the scrutiny of a dozen guards into the shower room. Coming out of the shower room, she wore only a thin regulation prison dress and a pair of shoes. Our Bible, how could we take it past so many watchful eyes? Oh, Betsy, I began and then stopped at the sight of her pain-whitened face. 
As a guard strode by, I begged him in German to show us the toilets. He jerked his head in the direction of the shower room. Use the drain holes, he snapped. Timidly, Betsy and I stepped out of line and walked forward to the huge room with its row on row of overhead spigots. It was empty, waiting for the next batch of 50 naked and shivering women. A few minutes later, we would return here, stripped of everything we possessed. And then we saw them, stacked in a corner, a pile of old wooden benches, crawling with cockroaches, but to us the furniture of heaven itself. In an instant, I had slipped the little bag over my head and along with my woolen underwear, had stuffed it behind the benches. And so it was that when we were herded into that room 10 minutes later, we were not poor, but rich, rich in the care of him who was God even of Ravensbrook. Of course, when I put on the flimsy prison dress, the Bible bulged beneath it. But that was his business, not mine. At the exit, guards were feeling every prisoner, front, back, and sides. I prayed, O Lord, send your angels to surround us. But then I remembered that angels are spirits and you can see through them. What I needed was an angel to shield me so the guards could not see me. Lord, I prayed again, make your angels untransparent. How unorthodox you can pray, she said, when you are in great need. But God did not mind. He did it. The woman ahead of me was searched. Behind me, Betsy was searched. They did not touch or even look at me. It was as though I was blocked out of their sight. Outside the building was a second ordeal, another line of guards examining each prisoner again. I slowed down as I reached them, but the captain shoved me roughly by the shoulder. Move along, you're holding up the line. So Betsy and I came to our barracks at Ravensbrook. Before long, we were holding clandestine Bible study groups for an ever-growing group of believers. And Barracks 28 became known throughout the camp as the crazy place where they hope. Yes, hoped. In spite of all that human madness could do, she said, we had learned that a stronger power had the final word even here. Hallelujah. Oh, to be in the care. Uh, yeah, go ahead, clap. God's amazing. Oh, to be in the care of the Lord Almighty. The second section of the psalm is verses 4 to 7. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. There is a river. Jerusalem was one of the few ancient cities not built on a river. Ancient cities needed water close at hand, especially during a siege. When Sennacherib attacked Jerusalem, he must have been sure that their lack of water would ultimately drive them to surrender. But unknown to Sennacherib, Jerusalem had a source of water. Wise King Hezekiah had built an underground tunnel which secretly brought water 1,777 feet through solid rock from the spring of Gahan to the pool of Siloam. That little stream supplied all of their needs during the siege. That river is a picture of the greater spiritual resources of the Lord himself. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. He is the living water who alone can quench our spiritual thirst. He is the God who's power enough, powerful enough to quell the uproar of the nations by simply raising his voice. When verse 4 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. The word streams literally means channels. C.S. Lewis once said, When we carry out our religious duties, Quote, unquote. And by this, I imagine he means things like studying and praying and uh, serving. When we carry out our religious duties, we're like people digging channels in a waterless land in order that when at last the water comes, 
it may find them ready. There are happy moments even now when a trickle creeps along dry beds and happy souls to whom this happens often. According to the psalm, God is within Jerusalem, the holy city, the place of God's dwelling, the temple. God is in her inward part. And we know that our bodies today are now his temple, the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. God is in our inward part. Verse 5, she will not fall, totter, shake, or slip. God will help her at the break of day, the beginning of the day. We're not ever without God's help, not even for a moment. He helps us at the break of day because he never sleeps. God always is there to help us. Verse 7, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. King James translation has the word refuge here, but it's a different Hebrew word than the earlier refuge in verse 1. In this verse, it's a word that means a high, inaccessible place like a cliff, a defense, a high fort or a tower. The Lord Almighty is with us. That's amazing news, isn't it? One writer said that God is most present to us when he seems to be absent. The third section of the psalm is in verses 8 to 11. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done. The word come in verse 8 means to come away. Come away from all the normal stuff of your life and see what God has done. It has the feel of intentionally setting our eyes on the things God has done. It makes me think of the Israelites recounting over and over again, whether in scripture or in their oral tradition or in their feasts, recounting the things that the Lord had done. In this particular case, God had caused Sennacherib and the Assyrian army to withdraw from Jerusalem. This was amazing. You saw it. They were huge. The Lord had worked on behalf of his people against the most powerful regime on earth at the time. Andrea, put the map up one more time, if you could. Thank you. By 1671, you can see how vast the empire had become, that lighter green. That was the Assyrian Empire by 1671 BC, just 30 years after this siege. But look at that little yellow. Oh, here's my pointer. Look at that little yellow. It's not green. Judah. Still. Judah, not Assyria. Judah, God did that. God did that. That was no small thing. Judah was small, but what God did was no small thing. Because God is the Almighty, because he is with us, vehemently present in the midst of us and within our inmost part, because he doesn't ever slumber or sleep or get caught off guard, because he's more powerful than even the most powerful on the earth, because he shelters us and gives us strength, because of all these things, we're told to be still and know that I am God. Much of the time, the verse, be still and know that I am God, is used by people to refer to being quiet and spending time in his word, which is a very, very good thing to do. But in the context of Psalm 46, the meaning is much bigger than that one specific way of being still. The verb used here for still means to abate, cease, slack, weaken. The sense is to stop wrestling and striving, to relax. If we were to rephrase it today, we might say to chill. Years ago, my family, we were on vacation in the Outer Banks in North Carolina. Compared to the beaches in Maine where I grew up swimming, the water in North Carolina is warm and inviting. We spent lots of time jumping the waves, boogie boarding, and body surfing. I've never been a, a strong swimmer. I'd describe myself as a fearful swimmer at best. One particular day, I was riding the waves in toward the shore, 
and somehow I got completely tossed about by the wave. So instead of just gliding toward the shore, I was under the water, which was very murky from the roughness of the tide. And I'd been so swept up by the waves that I had no idea where the surface of the water was. I wasn't in water over my head, but I couldn't get up above the water because I couldn't figure out where up was. In those brief moments, utter panic took over. Could I really drown in water that wasn't any higher than my waist or maybe even my knees? I realized quickly that I wasn't going to find which way was up by striving and rolling about in the water. And I was wasting precious breath with that striving. I realized that I was only going to find the surface of the water and the air that I needed by being still so that I could float to the top. So instead of flailing around trying to find the surface, I stretched out my arms and relaxed so I could float, and it worked. In the same way, the waves of this life trouble, invariably crash into us and knock us down. Our call is to be still and know that the sovereign Lord is in charge no matter what may come against us. The Lord Almighty is with us, my brothers and sisters. The God of Jacob is our fortress. William Barclay in the old days, he wrote, In the old days, when much of the world was unexplored and unknown, and when many lands were lands of mystery, men drew their maps. And in unknown places, they wrote such things as, Here be dragons, here be burning fiery sands. The Christian can take the map of life and write across every part of it. Here is Christ. Here is Christ. Here is Christ. Because of the Lord, we're not alone going through the troubles of life. Communion, among other things, serves as a reminder to us that God in Christ, Emmanuel, says, I am with you. I am with you as you face an unknown future. I'm with you as you go through cancer treatment. I'm with you in your brokenheartedness. I'm with you as you deal with difficult circumstances at work. I'm with you in your surgery. I'm with you in your strenuous schoolwork. I'm with you in that hard relationship. I'm with you in your loneliness. I'm with you when people mistreat you. I'm with you as you live with and fight against injustices. I'm with you in the earthquake, in the flood, in the fire. I am with you. I'm your exceedingly present help. I'm your refuge, he says. Hide yourself in me. I'm your strength, he says. Tap into my power. I'm your river, he says. Dig the channels so I can work in and preserve your life. I am with you. As the deacons prepare for, um, amen. As the deacons prepare for communion, today is Worldwide Communion Sunday. All over the world, brothers and sisters are partaking of communion elements. In form, they may do so differently than we do. Their bread and their cup may look different. Their bread may even be rice. But in substance, we have the same experience gathering around the table of the Lord, remembering the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus, remembering his life and death, receiving his love, receiving his help. There's a communion song. How about if the deacons, you guys can come. There's a communion song I really like by Pete Buckwald. It's called Gather Round. And one part of it says how he loves his church, how he loves it still. Though we often stray from the founding cornerstone, in the darkest night, I hope we hear the bell still toll. It's ringing out for all who hear to gather round. Gather round, O oh you brokenhearted. Gather round from near and far away. Let's remember Christ, his body and his blood. Break the bread, take the cup, gather round. 
in the darkest night, whatever our trouble, may we feel and experience the depth of his love for us and the promise of his presence in our lives and in our world. In the next moments, we'll be sharing communion together. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake of the bread and the cup. The deacons will be serving first the bread, then the cup as you remain in the seats. As you receive each of them, we ask that you hold them until all have been served and we can partake together. The table of the Lord is for all who believe, for all who have received Christ Jesus as Lord. Pastor Hank is supposed to be down here from his class, and he's not here. I'm going to do it without him. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We thank you today, Lord, for your broken body, for your loving sacrifice, for the power that it brings in our lives, for the power over sin. So we pray as we take this bread today, Lord, that we, in doing so, receive once again your love and your power in our lives. Fill us up, not just with the bread, fill us up with you. In Jesus' name, amen.
brothers and sisters, this bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Take and eat this bread, remembering he was born to be our Savior. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Feed on him in your heart and be thankful. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, which in the Jewish Passover feast is called the cup of blessing. And he told his disciples, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the blood that you shed on Calvary's cross for the remission of our sins. Thank you for a time of remembering all that you've done for us, God. All that your blood is intended to do, Lord, to heal us, to pull us together, Lord, to keep us in love with each other. Thank you for the blood that you shed. Help us, Lord, to keep on remembering, to keep on pulling together, to do your will in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
my brothers and sisters, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Take this cup, remembering that he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it together and be thankful. This time we invite the intercessors to the front and the worship team as we um, stand and sing together our closing song. If there are things that you need prayer for, you want brothers and sisters to pray with you and for you, uh, we invite you to come to the front.
trouble, whatever trouble is hovering over your life, ready to pounce and pray on you, God is an ever-present help. And maybe there's no trouble in your life, praise God if that's so, but someone you know needs a word of confidence that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Go this week knowing that truth for yourself and sharing that truth, that hope with others. Be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen.